everybody and welcome to the LDAT podcast. Today we're going to be talking to Vicky Malcolm. So Vicky is um, an OT working as a band civ- seven in a medium secure LD and autism unit in Norfolk. Before we get in with Vicky, should we do news and favourites? Yeah, let's go for it. Um, should we start with news? Yeah. So um, news from um, specialist section for people learning disabilities is that we just had a committee meeting and um, the plans for conference uh, for our conference date and study day are underway um, and we will very soon be putting out a call on social media for abstracts if people want to take part in um, I think that's mainly for the conference so please keep your eyes peeled and it's great CPD if you do submit an abstract and uh, mm. present and I've got um, some news from Build um, who also have a conference coming up in June. They're just confirming details, uh, but one of the committee members, um, Georgia, will be presenting um, an activities workshop at the conference. So please keep your eyes out for more information on social media. Um, and I've actually awkwardly got a favourite from Build as well. <laughs> um, we say we just love Build this episode. Yeah, we do. <laughs> Oh, great. Um, But I saw on Twitter the other day that Build put a tweet out with a link to a video which looked at the four principles of active support. And it's only like a seven minute video, but it's really useful. And uh, yeah, just really useful. And I suppose um, if any OTs that listen to this podcast want a good, nice, um, short video to get to the point about to support it's really useful so you can find that on the build twitter page it sounds like that would be really useful for using in training sessions yeah sometimes when you're trying to explain to support stuff yeah definitely look at that perfect so um let's get going and a big welcome to vicky so let's all welcome vicky hi vicky how are you doing Hi, uh, I'm doing really well, thank you. And thanks for having me along on the podcast. You are very Hi. welcome. So how has everything been? Have you had a good day? <laughs> yes, I have. It's been quite a busy day as usual, um, sorting out all of the activities for the patients on our medium secure ward. Um, and we also had an MDT today, so it's quite busy with a lot of discussions during the day. So um, I was wondering if maybe we start off by you giving us a little bit of background about kind of who you are, how you got into learning disability OT, and maybe a little bit more about your setting, if that's all right. Absolutely, yeah. So um, I finished my MSc occupational therapy in 2007. And um, I'd had a number of placements in rehabilitation mental health that I really liked. Um, So I wanted to go on a mental health rotation and I had to move to do that. So I moved to Peterborough and I was lucky to get some more rehabilitation mental health experience there. Unfortunately, not much learning disability experience during that time. But as I continued to work in mental health, I was looking sort of for further opportunities to um, be able to do the sort of occupational therapy that I like to do and the sort of occupational therapy I like is where you can spend a lot of time with the patients where you can really get to know what motivates them what they're interested in um, and where you can work with them on their personal activity goals in quite a lot of depth so after quite a long period working in rehabilitation I um, discovered that there was a job 
as a lead occupational therapist for a medium secure ward back in Norfolk, which is where I was from. And um, that job seemed really exciting to me, but I was a little bit hesitant, not only because I didn't have so much learning disability experience, but also because I hadn't worked in a secure setting before. I'd mainly worked in um, rehabilitation and acute mental health. Um, so what I did was I went to a similar unit in Watford and I spent the day there and I really noticed a lot of parallels working in mental health when you're working in rehabilitation and working in learning disability. Um, some of the things being sort of long-term motivational issues in the people that we work with, um, but also the benefit of having that scope and that time to do quite a lot of in-depth work with people in the way that I, I enjoy doing and find satisfying, I guess. Um, and when I was on placement as a student, I remember sort of the contrast between physical health and, and learning disability work. Um, I've got students at the moment, I was telling them about this, that I had um, a placement on a cardiology ward oh, and wow. they, had, they had all of the um, assessments timed sort of down to the, the minute. So they'd send you off to do your initial assessment and you had to be back within, you know, 25 minutes or, we, or you would get a bad report. <laughs> wow. And Alien, something, doesn't there's something it? Yeah. about that you know they that's the way they have to work because they've got so many people to get through but mm. I was there talking about this woman's cat and my educator said you know oh we should have really been back by now so yeah. uh, <laughs> oh just in learning disabilities that just wouldn't work would it sometimes yeah. we have to talk about someone's cat for a good while like sometimes yeah. that's really important <laughs> Mm. Absolutely, yeah. So, so yeah, yeah. sort of found my niche a little bit in in, um, in learning disability services, and the place where I work, the Broadland Clinic, um, it's it's quite a well established um, centre for people with autism um, and learning disabilities. So we tend to assess people. They may come from the prison environment. Um, they might come from a lower secure ward or a mental health service if it's thought that they need that specialist assessment. And then we've got all the MDT available to do that. So obviously specialist psychiatrists. Um, we have a speech and language therapist who works in our service, Kate, and she's absolutely fantastic. Um, and we've got psychologists. So we have everyone that we need to kind of do those assessments and work out if that's the appropriate kind of setting for that patient. It sounds like a really interesting setting. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I suppose the way I see it is that all the patients that arrive to us are kind of like a little puzzle that you have to work out and... Yeah, they've all mostly been, um, unfortunately, through a lot of trauma in their lives. Yeah, um, that may have may have led to the sort of risky behaviours that have ended up with them committing an offence or being at risk of committing a serious offence. So, um, yeah, it's about understanding and unlocking their motivations really through finding out what it is that they perhaps valued in the past or might value in the future, and then trying to work with them on on making that happen. Um, so I spend a lot of my time problem solving, as you can imagine, as an occupational therapist, trying to work out the best ways to make the most of the staffing resources and the physical resources that we have so that as much meaningful activity as possible can be facilitated for those patients every day. It's so interesting, isn't it? Um, seeing those complex cases, it does feel like you have to be a real investigator sometimes don't you to get to the bottom of the occupational problem and that's what I like about working in learning disabilities and and where I work as well it, we have a lot of com very very complex cases and it yeah it just it's just so it just gives it meaning I don't know I find it really meaningful myself doing that work I guess I don't know if you feel the same but kind of pulling apart those complex cases and really thinking things through and 
thinking them through the MDT and getting all those perspectives. Absolutely. And I was, I was thinking about, because um, I did the SI2 um, last year during oh, lockdown, which was fun. Like I think one of you guys did. Right, um, <laughs> you've just done your, yours, haven't you? Yeah, I just finished three, SI3. Wow. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got that on the agenda for October. <laughs> oh, amazing. Um, hopefully that's going to come off. Oh, you'll love it, Vicky. It's so good. <laughs> But um, yeah, but with two, you know, we were talking about the different sorts of clinical reasoning and, and, you know, how you can have that sort of type one, type two. I think it's really important that I have the time to, to kind of like sit down and, and draw out those complex cases and those theories. Um, yeah. Because you're always balancing that with the sort of day to day firefighting of who's going to take this person on leave and how are we going to make that activity group run. So, yeah, that's that's probably one of the challenges is kind of fitting in that um that time to come up with your hypotheses yes um, as it talks a lot about in the sensory kind of um frame of reference mm, definitely takes a lot of headspace time doesn't it to really think people yeah. through and and especially when you're adding the sensory element in uh, this is another level of complexity isn't it to things but once you figure it out very useful <laughs> absolutely um, so a lot of our work um we, we obviously work as an mdt team so a lot of our work centers on the pbs plan Oh, yeah. um, so when I get someone who's going to come to the service, I try my best to get an OT report from the previous placement. Um, but often they come from prison and they might not come with anything like that. Mm. So initially we would do something like an activity checklist um, just to see if there's anything obvious. We used to use the interest checklist, but I prefer the activity checklist from Recovery for Your Activity, um, the Sue Parkinson book. Yeah. Because I, oh, yeah. I just think it's a bit broader and, and also it's... Um, it's just got a little bit more about what roles are meaningful, like caring roles. Yeah, it's got that little bit extra, hasn't it? Yeah. Um, and we also have a, an adapted version of that. Oh, do so, you? Yeah, Ooh. yeah. It's just a homegrown one. We spend a lot of time kind of, you know, tinkering with assessments to try and make them accessible. I'd love it if you'd be happy to share that. <laughs> yeah, no problem. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um recently actually we made a talking map version of that as well oh, yes is oh, this what amazing. you were saying about before oh yeah tell us a yeah. bit more about that yeah so people might not be familiar with talking mats um so it's it's a speech and language therapy kind of intervention really but because of the way that we work in an integrated way, the speech and language therapist works really hard to make sure that she's assisting all of us to do our assessments and to get the sort of um, meaningful information from the assessments that we want to get. So um, our speech and language therapist and the students work with myself and we made a version of um, the interest checklist. And what it has is, um, sort of three different categories where someone can say if this particular interest, which is would be a picture on a card, for example, you know, a football, let's say something simple. So it's a picture of a football. So they would say, this is something that I used to do or something that I, I do now or something that I want to do in the future. And they would put the card in the category. So it's a very physical process and it's a very visual process. And there's basically no room for ambiguity um, and it's a very, very clear and simple way for them to understand and communicate the interests that they have. Um, so it's, it's quite a long process, though, because obviously there's a lot of categories in that assessment. So you can't really do it in one go. So we tend to do one category at a time and say, you know, sports. OK, what kind of sports did you used to do? What do you still do? And what would you like to do in the future? 
I think um, it's really good to work with salt on those kind of things. I've been working with our speech language therapist to adapt the OSA. Oh, cool. And it's been working really well. We've done it with one lady, but it's the same sort of situation where it's a very slow process and we've had to really break it down. But the um, activity checklist sounds like it would go even more in depth after you've done the OSA. It would be a really nice way you can pull out those um, specific interests. It sounds like a really nice... That's right. And quite a lot of the time we go on to create a custom talking map for that patient. So, um, wow, that's good. Yeah, because we've got a lot of patients that struggle in their one to ones. They might find that, you know, they they sit down with a nurse and they're not sure what they want to say or what they want to talk about or what's concerning them. Um, They quite commonly have their own talking map, which might have specific issues that's relevant to them. So a card about moving on, a card about a particular family member and then they'd be able to put in those ones uh they'd be able to put those cards into the categories about whether that's going well or it's okay or it's going not so well and that allows staff to then draw out the themes to discuss with that patient i suppose that's the sort of thing that i i hadn't really seen when i came to learning disability so that was something that was quite new to me and it would have been useful in rehabilitation mental health because, you know, we had a lot of people with communication issues, but it's not really considered in that kind of setting, or at least it wasn't then. Mm, it's such a shame because I think a lot of research shows, doesn't it, that uh, a lot of people, you know, forensic services do have, you know, communication issues, don't they? And, and yeah. So. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and then we have the OCARES. Um, the Occupational Circumstances Assessment Interview Rating Scale. Yeah. Um, And uh, I do use that. Um, I find that you kind of have to assess whether that's going to be suitable for someone, depending on how kind of conversationally able they are. Mm -hmm. So most of our patients got a mild learning disability and or autism. Um, We sometimes have people with Asperger's who obviously tend to be slightly, um, find interviews slightly easier. Um, but with the OCARES, it's sort of the OCARES versus the OSA. Um, Becky was mentioning the OSA. So if I if I find that someone's very kind of willing to chat and talk about their values and their kind of goals and those slightly more complex questions, then OCARES is the one to go for because of the richness of the information that you get. But if not, the OSA is, is a really kind of um, happy second best to me because you get really interesting information from that too. And there's some abstract concepts like, you know, problem solving, things like that, but you still get a good idea about what they want to work on and perhaps what their goals are moving forward. Mm-hmm. I definitely, I use the OCARES a lot in my training, you know, mental health placements, but actually oh. I've only used it once since working and learning disabilities. Um, so I know what you mean. It's, it's definitely got to be the right person, hasn't it? So yeah. Or right That's for right. that person. Sorry. Um, That's right. Yeah. And we pair it with the uh, MoHost as well. So we usually do the MoHost with our sort of objective views, if you like, our our therapist views of what their strengths and their their barriers are. And then we would use the OCARES for their subjective view. And I think you really need both sides of it. Um, I was giving the students an example the other day of you might be able to assess someone's cooking and find that they're, you know, struggling with certain things, but then you do the OKRs and you realize that they see themselves as a great cook and it's something that's really important to them. Mm-hmm. And so that really helps you to calibrate your intervention because if you went in and said, well, I think we need to start with the basics, you know, you could turn that patient off doing cooking completely and they yeah. would not want to have anything to do with you. 
Um, so I like having both both sides so that you can you can get their subjective view and work with that alongside what you're observing, I guess. Mm, definitely. definitely helps that motivation, doesn't it, to pick the right thing and put it in the right in the right place. Yeah. That person. I remember yeah. one time I had an, a situation where this young chap was really into cooking, but um I just I didn't quite get where he viewed himself as a cook. And he yeah. saw himself as quite a good cook who did lots of spicy food and Jamaican food. And yeah. I showed him an easy read cookbook with some quite simple recipes. And he was just like, no, I'm not doing that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can imagine. Yeah, yeah that, just to have a conversation about what he did want to do. And he wants yeah. spicy chicken. And that was fine. Nice. Mm. That's making me hungry now, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I always find the amps really interesting as well. You know, you sort of have that discussion with someone you're working with about where they feel they're at, what they yeah. want. And I always find that's quite good to kind of really gain, you know, an idea of where they're, yeah, where they're at in their mind with that activity. I'd really love you... to make um, better use of my amps because I've got, I've got, um, I'm accredited for it and I've kept it up. But mm. I think, I think it's one of those opportunities that we have to come to a professional meeting with some really detailed kind of scientific information as as a psychologist often bring in their charts and graphs and, yes. and such things. And I, I feel like I could make better use of it in that respect if I did a few more of them. Yeah, yeah. Karen, um, who I work with and I, we've used the amps a lot actually because it's kind of, it's just such a great way to, yeah, put across with lots of stats, um, you know, like, you know, <laughs> where you're at um, and kind of showing someone's function, I guess, isn't it, compared to, you know, someone's healthy and well, this is where they would be and this is someone, you know, that's in hospital and unwell. And yeah. Where at. Um, and then this is where they were at on their mission and this is where they're at now and they're being discharged at it's like a good you know a really good way to kind of lay it out with numbers and um, it's yeah. a good tool for your particular setting as well yeah and yours as well Vicky I suppose it's slightly different in community but still as useful but in slightly different ways mm, yeah in the community it's really good for social care I think and yeah you always say yeah I always like, think that care packages are like needed you know and this is where someone is actually like they yeah. might say they can do all these things when you go and interview them you know about what they can and can't do Exactly. you know they might say this but this is where they're at um but yeah um I think in the hospital setting it's such a good out it's such a good outcome measure yeah really yeah. But, absolutely yeah. we're quite lucky in our trust because we've got um like an amps um community of practice meeting so it's good because you know there's lots we have lots of conversations about use of the amps and we can kind of check out how the other ots and our trust are using it and things which is really helpful with like ideas and stuff so yeah interested to join it i've only just done my amps vicky so i haven't actually done one in real life yet so <laughs> i'll be joining like amps comp with Bryony and all of this so it'll be quite exciting oh brilliant that is very exciting yeah. yeah, I'm interested in how it can um, help to contribute to a diagnostic formulation as well. Mm. Um, yeah. So I'm finding the psychologists are using, and it's actually slipped my mind what it's called now, but they ask functional questions as part of their um, the process of diagnosing the learning disability. Mm. And I feel Wait. like the feedback, yeah, they, they do those for sure. Um, well, but they've got, they've got one that's, it almost sounds like an OT assessment when you look at it. I'll probably come to me later in the podcast. <laughs> yes, I thought Vicky, our um, psychologist actually meant, actually mentioned that to me. I can't remember what it's called now, but I know what you're talking about. Um, yeah, yeah, because actually, in some trusts, 
um the amps is used isn't it as part of as part of the diagnostic mm. pathway oh fantastic mm. and a, a lady that trained me in the amps worked in a service I think where they use the amps in a diagnostic pathway and she did explain really well <laughs> how yeah. that happens but I in the um CTPLD when I worked there I did an amps that it isn't part of the diagnostic pathway for that service but um, I was asked to do an amps to really look at the function when they were doing a um a waste and other things to diagnose yeah. a disability so there's definitely an opportunity for it. I just need to need to promote it more. Need to, need to get better at promoting the, <laughs> the stuff they can bring, I think. To, yeah. Um, I was thinking more about, um, you know, you, you guys were asking me about what I like about being an LDOT. Yes. Mm. Yeah. Um, I think for me in this sort of role, I feel like it is really a privilege to help these guys because they have so many disadvantages um from you know their sort of stigma around the labels that are attached to them being an offender or being someone with schizophrenia or someone with personality disorder you know they've just got things piled on top of them and often they've been kind of turned away from different services or maybe passed between services with very short admissions in different hospitals and things seem to get worse every time um so i think being a specialist service and being in the position we are, we've got that real opportunity to try and help them and try and change their lives. And we've got the time to do that. So I think that's probably what I like most about it is sort of being able to meet with them and try and, you know, show them that we believe that they can have a better life and that there's ways of achieving that and that we can put some steps in place to take that forward. Um, lovely. Yeah. It's nice having an OT role, isn't it, where you can really really work to make someone's life really meaningful yeah and especially when they've they've only had those labels and they can potentially leave with some better labels like being a volunteer or being a student or a family member or some of those things that they might they might prefer to be able to define themselves as as opposed to just you know someone that's an offender mm -hmm. i had um some i did some training um at our service um around occupational therapy and what we do and, and why we do it and um I was there you know and we we're sort of having a think actually as a group about how someone with a learning disability might actually have never experienced um really good meaningful you know engagement or you know they might come to us and no one's ever asked them what they like to do or in yeah. their life or ever been able to figure it out or ever yeah spent the time with someone to to you know really build an occupational identity with them and yeah. you know working in the pediatric team and with you know babies who will go on to you know to have a diagnosis of a learning disability to yeah to adults like you can really see actually that lots of people with a learning disability from like the day they're born you know might not ever have that and they're kind of like you know that that meaningful kind of occupational engagement even from when they're teeny tiny yeah be really restricted so, so it is a privilege isn't it to be in a position where you get to work with someone that might never have had that to really build a life that they want yeah and I suppose because of the amount of um sort of risk involved you also attract the resources to a medium secure unit so right. in terms of sort of like you know we have a not a great budget but we have a reasonable budget we have a reasonable amount of staff most of the time so you have hopefully got that resource that can make that impact Mm -hmm. um, and we're lucky that we um, 
you know, have had quite a lot of success with patients the last few years. I've been there eight years or so. We've had quite a lot of people that have got discharged to the community from the medium secure, um, which has been really, really rewarding to see people kind of go out and learn how to use a mobile phone for the first time or see a, a checkout at Tesco that's, a, you know, an automated checkout for the first time because they might have been in Rampton or one of the high secure units for, you know, 10 years and then in different hospitals and perhaps they've never experienced that. Kind of stuff in the real world and when just um when you were mentioning about sort of diagnosis and stuff do you sometimes mm. get people come into your service who don't have a learning disability diagnosis then yes it can happen it oh. tends to be that they have um a learning disability but what can happen is that people come in from prison or or at the sort of court stage and they're diverted to be assessed and then it might be found that they don't have a learning disability or autism, in which case they might go back to the prison or to the court for a different kind of um, resolution to their criminal justice issue. Um, mm. But in, in the main, we have people with multiple diagnoses. So they've all got autism or a learning disability or both. And then they've got schizophrenia or personality disorder or, um, or other factors at play. <laughs> mm, mm. Do you assess for autism as well at your service, Vicky? Um, yeah, we do. Yeah, yeah. Not not myself, but the psychologists and the um, the psychiatrists do. And um, yeah, yeah. I think um, working with autism, um, I've I've sort of learned a lot over the years. Um, we have a sort of fine balance between providing a responsive kind of activity schedule and also a lot of people that don't want us to change things. Mm. So um, you, you, you quickly discover who the people are for whom you, you want to ver be very subtle about shifting anything, you know, the time of the group or the, the structure of the group. And then for others, they want novelty and variety. Um, so what, what we developed uh, over the years is a 12 week activity program, kind of similar to a college. Um, when I first arrived at the clinic, they hadn't had an OT for a while and quite a lot of their activities had just been running and running and running. And I met one of the young gentlemen making a matchstick castle. He was like very um, uh, absorbed, I suppose, in, in placing these matchsticks, making this castle. It was beautiful. He'd obviously been doing it a long time. I said, you know, how long have you been doing this? He said, oh, a couple of years. And I said, well, you must really like it then. He was like, no, not really. You know, and I just sort of thought, oh, this, this poor guy has been, you know, in his group no. doing this all that time. And I said, so are you going to keep it afterwards? He was like, no. Oh, no. Oh, God, that breaks your heart. Yeah, so I think, I think that made me realise, you know, that um, although you might think that everyone wants to do similar things, and there are people that obviously don't like change, um, there's also there is that need to keep things sort of fresh and keep things moving forward for the patients and and so that's why we set up that kind of program and in between we have a short planning uh, week where we do some events and celebrate their achievements through having a little event ceremony with certificates um, and we do some questionnaires and we do some sort of quality assurance about the groups and whether they're running whether the recovery college has met the aims that we wanted it to have whether the groups have been well received and got good feedback and then that sets us up for the next 12 week block. Oh, lovely. I love that you're getting um, the, the impatience to, um, yeah, give that feedback and mm -hmm. like really thinking about what they're taking from it. Yeah, awesome. there's a lot of um, service user um, involvement, actually. 
Um, I found I found more so in in learning disability. I think because there are a lot of staff, and these are quite sort of large units, these secure units with with a lot of resources, and there's also quite well established national networks um, where you know patients can meet patients from other units, um, sometimes in person, although obviously increasingly online, mm. and they can give feedback. Um, the the kind of I suppose it's kind of like a recovery approach, but in learning disability, uh, but it's, it's sort of come through secure hospitals where through the recovery and outcomes network, they brought together carers and service users to try and um, increase the kind of honesty and transparency around people's admissions. So people in the past would have been in a secure unit, perhaps not knowing what they were being treated for or what the risks were that staff were concerned about with all the documentation secret and not really knowing what you needed to do to move forward but since yeah I guess the early 2000s when they had the recovery and outcomes meetings and my shared pathway um, those kind of booklets and those kind of approaches were brought in to make sure that we're very focused on a discharge pathway and that we're very honest and clear with patients about what it is they need to do to move forward whether that's in a small situation like losing their kitchen access or um, a long-term situation like trying to get out of the secure hospital. Mm -hmm. It's definitely taken some positive step forward hasn't it from where it was once upon a time so yeah I believe so discharge and and I think and I do feel like um service user engagement in stuff is sort of gaining ground isn't it like there's more more and more of it and I know there's a lot of research going on at the moment isn't there around learning disabilities and and uh service user involvement in setting up services how they're you know yeah. finding services and what are the blocks and I think it will hopefully only get better when you see it from here so yeah we're really lucky as well that we've got a charity in Norwich called Opening Doors mm. and um, they are run by and chaired by people with learning disabilities awesome. and then their um, their board then hires support staff to support them to engage in all sorts of you know support sessions and um, government and police consultations and national consultations Brilliant. And they have a centre in Norwich, but then um, we contracted them, I think, about five years ago to come into the Broadland Clinic and do sessions with the patients. Mm. Again, more recently, that's been on Zoom, but it's been a really beautiful partnership, actually, because um, our patients can then see, you know, what it's like to live in the community and they can get those resources about the community. And then there was three, I think, three of our patients that went were discharged and carried on being involved with opening doors and became a part of the organization so they had that support during the transition which was really helpful yeah it's a great charity actually opening doors if anyone gets a chance to look it up yeah. we'll put I'll, the I'll um <laughs> after this i was just googling it now i was just thinking we'll put the link um in the description of your podcast vicky so people can click on it if they want to have a look oh thanks quite nice yeah, that's one of the most uh, popular sessions we have at the moment is the video call that they do with opening doors oh. on a Wednesday and they all, you know, they're all in the activity centre um, around the laptop and then the, the opening doors call them. <laughs> I was going to ask you, Vicky, when someone comes to um, your unit, do you have like a blanket OT referral system or do you get individual referrals for pieces of work? 
No, it's very much blanket. So I have a BAM5 um, OT Lorna who um, tends to be responsible for the admissions ward. Mm. Um, but we both, between us, cover all of the patients. Um, and it's it's kind of an expectation that they'll all have the relevant assessments at the relevant times, really. So we don't get pressure to do every single assessment, but we are expected to do the sort of appropriate ones. Great. Yeah. When it comes to the, um, the OT pathway, we do have it all set out and we try to sort of aim for, as I've said, you know, Mohost, OCARES, interest checklist, the adult sensory history as well. I'll probably talk mm. about that in a minute. And um, that's the one we, we're using. And um, then we write a report with some ADL stuff in it and all of that stuff combined. And I'm trying to, the last few years, I've been trying to make sure that we have a case formulation, like an occupational case formulation Great. from the MOHO model. Um, so that's that's a really nice way. It's kind of like your elevator pitch. So it's like summarize all of the assessments you've done and tell me this person's key issues with their occupational identity and competence. Um, yeah. And then, yeah, you can kind of make it like the elevator pitch, like this is how you describe that person in, in one minute go. <laughs> and it's really useful when you come to a CTR panel, a care treatment Ooh. review panel, or a, you know, a CPA uh, care program approach meeting. Absolutely. Good way to get um, prepared for that, for sure. <laughs> yeah. I do find it interesting with the CTR panels because they pretty much always want a sensory assessment. Yes, we have that too. Mm. Yeah. And I find, um, although, you know, I'm happy to do a sensory assessment, Often it's kind of like they're just happy if you've done one, aren't they? Yeah. I, th I think it needs to be relevant and meaningful and it needs to be about a sensory need, not just to kind of, well, you've done one. Okay, that's good. I know, I know. And sometimes we have to really explain, like, actually, not everyone does need one. And actually, it wouldn't be ethical to put everyone through one. Um, yeah. It can be pretty hard, hard going. Um, and sometimes people aren't at a point in their um, admission you know to get there you know sometimes we have people that are, I don't know if you have the same but you know they come to us and they're very much in a place where um you know you're spending weeks kind of building a rapport really to even begin yeah. any kind of assessment you know because for us you know so low or they've lost that motivation you know yeah um, it's fascinating yeah. really um I, I put it down to the effects of occupational deprivation really so if someone's been yeah. in prison or or a restricted setting and I mean even our setting is a restricted setting yes. you, know, you, you can't get away from the power dynamic and the fact that there's so many locked doors and mm -hmm. so many restrictions but yeah if someone's been in that setting a long time you can think about the obvious skills that atrophy like your communication skills or perhaps your pattern of occupation and your roles and routines but even like your volition atrophies so people lose their confidence and their ability to have kind of self-efficacy and um, personal causation and they lose their ability to make choices because if you've been in prison and you're told what time you can have a cup of tea and you know that that's your life for years then you kind of lose the ability to choose when you want to have your cup of tea mm, mm, it's amazing I understand really the prisons amazing. are on a half an hour unlock with COVID. So, I mean, you, you got half an hour when you're out of your cell. I mean, it's, it's oh. unfathomable, isn't it? Mm. Really? Mm. I had no idea yeah. about this. Yeah, because cause obviously they're not allowed to mix um, out, out on the wing. I mean, I hope it's changed, but that was the last news yeah. article that I read. They are very restricted in the prisons at the moment. Mm. Wow. <laughs> it must be having such a huge... Well, it is having a huge impact, isn't it? But... 
Yeah. Um... Our guys don't tend to come from the, the main wing anyway. They'd probably be on the healthcare wing, you know, okay. likely to have been vulnerable, maybe not very well mentally. So yeah, yeah, that's that's kind of the situation that people often come in from. And then like you're saying, you know, unlocking that motivation that I think about it like the kind of um, re-motivation approach. So mm. you've got that exploratory level where you just might be putting a car magazine in front of them because, you know, they like cars and you just leave it at the side of the room and then you just see them flicking through it. Or yeah. maybe they, they agree to sit at the side of the group, but they don't want to do the group. Oh, I'll go and see what it's like. I'll sit at the side. Yeah. You know, yeah. and maybe maybe we're setting up a group. I mean, recently we did a card making group with the student OT. Um, and we've also done a Lego group recently where you'd set up a group where they can't fail. There's no example to follow. It's all accessible. They can come for 10 minutes and still have a good outcome from the group. And yeah. that's the sort of thing we set up for them. And then you hope that they'll obviously progress with their, their motivation. But that's always a good place to start. I always find it really fascinating. You know, you, you have um, someone in your care who is just sort of their, their motivations are so non-existent at the point mm. of admission that when mm. they even start to look at you it feels like a massive achievement do you know what I mean I, yeah. I had that recently where <laughs> I just got like an eye glance and the eye glance was like oh, wow you know <laughs> yeah I love that <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's like that it just shows you you know what how extreme that can be and, and yeah putting yeah. across that sometimes can be a bit challenging when yeah there's demand for very complex assessment um but, yeah know, you know um, if it's all right I, I was gonna uh yeah that's right if it's all right I was gonna talk about a, a particular um person that came through yeah, mm. we'd love for you um, to please because I wanted to talk about the ash and he's a good one to talk about yeah let's do yeah. it um, yeah, so this is a young man in his 20s, and he came in in October. So he's very much someone I'm sort of currently working hard with. Um, has ADHD, has a learning disability, and also atypical autism. So quite a complex young man. Um, they're looking at a diagnosis of personality disorder because there's definitely some attachment issues um, from a lifetime of kind of being in trauma and short-term care placements um so yeah so he came into our um admissions ward as i said it's like a blanket referral so he was allocated to myself and um what was interesting was he did come with a sensory assessment but it was based on the adolescent adult an adult um sensory um i'm gonna forget what i'm saying now the questionnaire the, um, yeah you know the really done one it was based on the on the Winnie Dunn, you know, where you're a, a sensation seeker or um, low registration, the one with the four quadrants. Yeah. Um, so it was okay, but it was very much like all sensory modulation um, rather than looking at anything in terms of praxis. Yeah. So having done the, the module two, I thought, right, I want to do something a bit broader than that then. Um, and it was interesting because he has so many sensory needs. He's very... Um, hypersensitive to, to noise, especially unexpected noise. I mean, I think that is linked to the trauma from his past, unfortunately, and the way that's affected his kind of neurological development. Hypervigilance as well, probably, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, goodness, absolutely. Mm. Yeah. And um, he agreed to do the, um, the adult sensory history of me, which I thought would be better than a sensory profile. And um, 
Eventually, I worked out that the best way I could do it with him is if he sat on the trampoline in the gym. <laughs> we I don't mean, we don't have like a sensory gym. We just have an actual gym. <laughs> so <laughs> it's like a little trampette. So he's sitting on that, bouncing up and down, answering the questions, and I'm putting the cards out on the on the talking mat for him. And um, yeah, it was really fascinating, actually. And it's the longest that he'd sat down to do an assessment. So I was really pleased with that because some of the other professionals were saying, like, how did you get him to sit down for that long? Yeah, and he was able to identify some really interesting things. Like he liked the sound of fans and white noise. Um, and he really struggled with sort of um, visual discrimination, which I, you know, we didn't know about before. Um, he also reported that he was clumsy and dropped things a lot. Talked about liking to be barefooted, which we've seen quite a lot of since. He tends to take his slippers off against uh, staff advice because obviously the floors, they're getting cleaned all the time. You're not really supposed to walk around barefoot in, in the wards. Um, yeah, so he identified quite a lot of things through that and also things that, that bother him and, and that he finds uncomfortable. Um, a lot of them were to do with noise. And what I did after that was I'd written an activity care plan for him just about making sure that he had a session twice a day um, as he kind of settled in. And I wanted to do the OCARES um, because he talked a little bit about wanting to work and some sort of values about how he appreciated his family and wanted to be a good son. So I knew that he was able to do that verbally. Mm. In the end, I did a lot of it walking around the pitch. So we have like an all weather pitch. Oh, like so a football just, pitch. Oh. Yeah. So I was going out with him walking around the pitch. And I was like, oh, oh, by the way, like, you know, what do you think about your routine? And he would tell me stuff and I'd write it down when I got back in. And that seemed to be quite a good way of doing it. But we identified that he, he did really want to work and he wanted to work in a kind of real environment. And in the last few years, we worked on a community business um, that we managed to start. It was a, a walled garden that was derelict from when the site used to be an old psychiatric kind of hospital and learning disability hospital. Mm -hmm. So out of, out of the hundreds of patients that used to be there, we've only got two um, units left. And then the rest of the site is all new houses. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, a common as sight these days. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as a lot of these sites go, you know. Mm. Um, but this wall garden had been there, you know, since Victorian times. It was all derelict. And so we worked with some local residents to start a little community shop there. Yeah, and it's been a really fascinating journey because we didn't know anything about running a shop and all these kind of retired accountants and retired <laughs> business people came on board like, yes, we can help. Um, and, and now since the shop's been running in September, it's been a really useful place to take people on leave. So mm -hmm. I took this young man um, to the shop on leave and uh, he said, oh, I think I would like to work in a shop. And once I got some work experience in Tesco, um, this is a bit of an example of how the OKS can be helpful as well, because there's not a lot of detail about this work experience at Tesco. And no one's quite sure if he just helped out for a day or if he actually helped out for a long time. And his mum also worked there. So there's that element of, you know, was he, was he just helping his mum? But what's important is in the OKS, he's like, this is my work experience. It was a big thing. I'm really experienced at this. And so that then gave him the confidence to apply to do some volunteering in the little shop that we have. And it was quite an early thing, really, because he's not been there that long and he's still got a lot of difficult behaviours on the ward. So, for example, like head banging, which is really distressing, you know, when we see that and we're, we're concerned about his um, physical health with that. Um, 
so people sort of said well you know if you if you if you think you can do a, a safe care plan for them to volunteer in the shop you know please do that and bring it to MDT and we we went ahead with it and what's been really really fascinating is that you know he has just placed so much importance on this work role he absolutely loves it he spent time with me writing a disclosure letter about his risks and he's got some he's got he hasn't got all the insight into his risk, but he's got enough insight into his risk to help me write that letter. And also the application form. And he kept asking me if I'd taken it down there. And, you know, after I'd taken it down there, he wanted the response. And then um, he's now done three weeks of volunteering. And all he's doing is going in. Um, he speaks to the manager. He does a little bit of shelf stacking and, you know, rearranging things. And last week he was filling up the big jar of cookies putting new cookies in so that the kids that come in could buy those. Um, but he couldn't be prouder, you know, he's so proud of this, this voluntary role. And he, he told his um, carer about it when he did a video call with her, which I thought was fantastic. Oh, it's amazing. Yeah. What an achievement. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, he was saying, you know, that he's never done anything like that for many years. Oh. And my hope is that, you know, if you can give people that, that sense of a positive identity that's beyond you know, their, their situation and, and beyond perhaps what people have told them their life is going to be, mm. then that, that can really work alongside the difficult work that they have to do as well. So if someone has to go into psychology sessions or go into a group treatment and talk about their fire setting or their sexual offending, you know, that can very much focus on, on that aspect of their identity. And I think they need something alongside that to be able to believe that they're, you know, uh, a good person or someone with a future and that can that can really help them to engage in both at the same time, I believe. And he can heard, continue to build on that. That's the thing. I just keep yeah. thinking, where can he go from there? <laughs> yeah. Well, he already said he wants to do um, half an hour because so far he's just been doing okay. 10 minutes. Yeah. Um, mainly because I'm trying to judge with the ADHD as well, his length of concentration and tiredness. He can suddenly be very, very tired and just say, I'm so tired, I need to go back, <laughs> um, which is absolutely fine. So we're sort of playing it by ear a little bit with that. But it's lovely yeah. seeing him interact with the other staff in the shop as well, who are also volunteers, you know, from the, from the community. So it's got all that kind of anti-stigma side to it as well. Yeah. Have you ever heard of or used the employment passport, Vicky? I'm just going to say I haven't. I'd love to hear about it, though, Becky. Um, it's lovely. It's made by an OT. Um, it was actually developed for her son to use, who has a learning disability. But I'm just wondering if it might be a really nice tool for you to kind of capture the things he's really good at at work, and he might quite enjoy having the ownership over that. Mm, yeah, we use it quite a lot, don't we, Becky? That oh, I use it all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Great I can forward, yeah, it's a great document. I can forward it on to you. Um, but thank yeah. you. Yeah, I'd no, really appreciate that. I'm gonna have a little email swapping party yeah. after this, I think. Resources <laughs> swapping. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, so obviously the, the head banging and things, um, we're still meeting about that. And um what's been interesting is that he originally we went to a CPA and I said yes you know this gentleman will be able to attend the sensory awareness group and it's going to be really good and we'll learn all these strategies and then quite quickly I, I realized that he's not going to be able to sit in the group right. so a couple of times he tried to come to our our session on sensory awareness and he really struggled I explained a bit more about that group though yeah. so it's, it's one of our recovery college groups and it's based on the um 
how does your engine run oh yeah which okay. um is about is about sensory modulation it's, it's a program they do with children and in fact when i was on placement when i was doing um pediatric placement when i was a student i went to the group and what they do is they do a different kind of sensory activity each week so it's quite experiential mm. and then kids learn how to stay in the just right space so not kind of revving your engine too fast and breaking down and and not kind of like so slow that you're crawling but running at a good engine speed mm. it's a bit of a metaphor which can work with autism and cannot work with autism so we have to you know play that by ear but um yeah we base the program on that so it's a 12-week group and each week we do a different type of experiential session oh. the first week we did touch and we had them do like a self-hand massage from youtube using some really nice kind of like smelly stuff and they all found it so relaxing they were really chilled Aww. and then they did some reflections on kind of like what's good for them in terms of touch and what's not good and then the second week we did about um sound and we did like a sound quiz which everyone found really funny where you were trying to guess a sound and then it would say oh that was a sore and everyone would go no it wasn't i didn't hear that <laughs> Um, and we talked to them about, you know, unexpected noises and, and different noises. Um, we've got builders on the site of the Broadland Clinic at the moment. And so there's a lot of complaints about the unexpected building noises that are going on all the time. That's hard. That's hard. For this gentleman, I got him some ear defenders, which are a bit similar to these headphones I've got on, actually. <laughs> he's, he's, he gets on OK with the ear defenders when he remembers to wear them. And we've got some more sessions coming up. So... The next one we've actually got is about vestibular, which we just called balance, you know, for ease of accessibility. Um, so that's going to be fun because we'll be getting those little trampettes out again hey. and uh, talking <laughs> about balance. Um, one of the things that's interesting as well is like I wanted to include interoception this time. Mm. So I hadn't included it before, but that's because I don't think I was that kind of confident like with it. Um, but I read that book by uh, Kelly Marler, is it? Oh, yes. And I really enjoyed that book. And I thought, actually, this is something that's really important to talk about with autism, because I feel like they really don't have a good sense of their internal signals oh, in their bodies. Yeah. There's actually research in there. Um, I can't remember what the research the, in neuroscience and Karen and I were talking about it the other day, because it's really relevant mm. to what we're working with. But I think they found... Um, that the insula and the brain the structure of it is different um, mm. for people who have autism. And that's where we yeah. test our um, interoceptive sensations. So kind of That's right. It's all about the insula, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. I mean, the good news, I suppose, is neuroplasticity. So hopefully there could be ways of developing that through things like the exercises in the book. Yeah, yeah. Is it the interoception curriculum? Um, I did I read about that. But um, yeah, I'll have to look the book up and just remind myself. Mm, one of our OTs in the CTPLD recently did, um, in the west of our trial, she recently did the training in that. And we're using it with someone at the moment. It's really good. Oh, wow. oh nice. Um, it's a good, good way to get people to think about it, you know, and what they're experiencing. And, um... Yeah, what I, what I perhaps didn't, what I perhaps didn't realise as well is like, that it's the basis for emotional recognition yeah so like so like it's obvious when you think about it but if you don't understand the little signals from your body how do you know when you're stressed or angry or sad or happy yes definitely because my my SI supervisor and um, she 
works in a clinic for children who are fostered or adopted so um mm. and who've experienced significant trauma and actually she was telling me that actually she starts um quite a lot of the time right from that recognition kind of stage of this is what you're experiencing um yeah. because you know children in neglected house in you know uh from households where they're neglected they don't sort yeah. of learn things like we normally do to, you know like oh you're ill you know you you've got a stomach ache or that yeah. means you're in pain that means you need the toilet that means you need you know yeah learns it's so fascinating what those yeah. things mean absolutely um but it's so vital you know we, we had a young guy um in our sense he doesn't he can't pinpoint where he feels pain in his body at all yeah the other day he put um my assistant um was telling me he put got pva glue in his hands and he was like i'm in pain i'm in pain and she was like oh what's oh. going on and it was actually not oh. pain it was a feeling of glue on his hand but he labeled yeah. it because he didn't really know what label was the right one yeah 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 absolutely so, wow. so fascinating but it is and to me that sort of reminded me of some of our um, sessions where we've done about emotional recognition and again, that tends to be something we did with the speech and language therapist, but you can show someone a picture of a, a sad face and maybe, you know, with the autism, they just sort of say, I'm not sure what they're feeling. I don't know. Mm. You know, and it's, it's how can we know what other people's emotions are, I suppose, if we don't understand our own. So there's all these building blocks that haven't been built. Yeah. <laughs> so then you can't just focus on the top level stuff and say like, yeah, okay, let's learn about that. When they don't even know how they're feeling inside of their own bodies in the first place. Mm, mm. and how much does that you know impact on your function every day Huge. yeah yeah massive yeah in terms of even being able to predict other people and feeling safe around them yeah absolutely knowing what you need how do I get my needs met when I don't even understand them yeah so this this uh, young man you know so he didn't want to come to the group but what I've been doing is doing it with him one-to-one -one. so oh, I just lovely. print out the powerpoints and take them to him and say right we're going to do this as a one-to-one and does that work quite well? Yeah, so far so good. Um, I was pleased to hear when we were reviewing the headbanging the other day um, with the team, you know, they were saying that they'd been doing the hand massage with him. Great. So at least one thing has transferred into the, the ward environment. So I was glad about that. Because that's always the battle, really. You're working with a big team and staff rotate in and out. Yeah. Um, and there's so many care plans and PBS plans and strategies that they have to remember all the time. And then they're dealing with crises and, you know, patients that are quite upset and disturbed. Um, so it's all about trying to make sure that the learning that we have and, and the techniques that we have transfer into that environment. The ward team are absolutely fantastic, but they are very busy as well. So we need to make it as easy as possible for them to you know, take forward the techniques that have been identified through the multidisciplinary team assessment. Mm, mm. It's, it's such a tricky, I find that the hardest thing about my job really is kind of getting those strategies and things kind of out there in everyday kind of practice. Because obviously our job is to figure out how to engage people in everyday activities that are meaningful yeah. and they can't just be doing that when they're with you. Um, yeah. We had an OT student actually that came up with so she, where she the service she'd been an assistant in um uh, use these care plans where they go through and people would tick off if people had done things so she actually mm. did a really lovely piece of work for us um and we're just starting to 
trial it which is an occupational mm -hmm. care plan and then we kind of mm -hmm. write you know this is how someone engages in this particular thing and then it's in part of the daily op sheet so the people that mm -hmm. are working with that person all day to engage them go yeah. back and kind of tick it off and they can see how someone do you know what I mean it's a good way of communicating it they can see how someone should engage in something and yeah it's tricky isn't it you're always trying to find those ways to get those messages out there and yeah and, and that's right they're so busy and they've got loads of things to think about it's tough and, and we're very ambitious with our PBS plans and we want it to be like a full history and have all the techniques in there but sometimes you also need to focus on what's going to be accessible to that bank staff that's just come in yeah. and oh I just need to know what, what do I need to do with this guy you know so <laughs> you yeah. have to have that level of detail so people understand why these things work but then also you have to have that accessibility for the staff as much as for the patients to know you know what to do on that day yeah absolutely we set up these ot folders recently actually where with bank staff in mind where someone mm. comes onto the ward they can literally pull this folder down and it's like this is this person this is what they like this is what they really don't like here yeah. are loads of easy read activity you know things for them that they use to do activities and this is what you need for them and that kind of thing so we're just thinking how do we do that you know of agency yeah. staff and things it's really well not agency but you know bank um yeah it's tricky yeah definitely yeah whole added complexity to work in a ward isn't it that's <laughs> the people that know people well which are, who are amazing and then people that have never met them before and they've got to still support them to do the things they want to do absolutely yeah and we're quite good at being very um adaptable I was thinking about the autism again and we do have a lot of people that have specialist interests and they some of them can be quite hard to accommodate so we spend quite a lot of time looking at restrictive practice and how that kind of might um, be able to be challenged mm -hmm. so that we can help people to do what they want to do. Um, we had an example a few years ago of a, a man who came in um, from a high secure service and he was only really interested in music and he in fact didn't really want to come and he said you know oh I don't feel safe here you know take me back to the high secure unit where mm -hmm. there's more staff and I feel safer um, and I don't want to go and leave you know I don't want to go out in the community and um, eventually we realized how important music was to him. And then we, we went through a lot of steps to get him like a drum that he could use our activity center. So to start with people said, no, no, he can't have a snare drum. You know, it's got wire on it. You know, it's made of metal, no way. And then we went through the process of, of making a care plan to make it safe and gradually, you know, built him up to being able to do music. And then we got someone to come in and do music tuition with him. Um, and then the next stage was we we spoke to him about going to a studio and he actually did his first leave. I was lucky enough to go on it. First leave, you know, hardly went out at the, at the, at the high school unit. <laughs> we went out in the bus, went to a music studio. I think, you know, I was, I was holding on to the, uh, the car door, <laughs> slightly nervous, you know, and he had a brilliant time and he was great. And because it was that thing that he loved to do, you know, that was his specialist interest to do music. Since then, he's done no end of performances and he's made his own albums. He practices every day. The music's gone from strength to strength, although every time you turn around, he's ordered a new instrument. <laughs> <laughs> Last one was a ukulele. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, but yeah, he, he loves it. And it's, it's motivated him and it's kind of unlocked his confidence and his willingness to go and do things in the community as well. Um, 
even down to sort of small performances at open mic nights and and that kind of thing oh that's all awesome. that's, that's amazing yeah yeah How much that's grown that's yeah awesome. but i've been working with them the whole time i've been there so you know that's quite a long <laughs> <laughs> i suppose that's what makes it difficult with the time. students isn't it because they come for seven weeks and it's sort of like oh will lots of things change well maybe they won't <laughs> change that much <laughs> yeah sadly yeah. not we wish but yeah I've got two students at the moment, actually. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I did have one last year, but obviously last year was was a bit of a write-off to start with, with having students. Mm. Um, but it's nice it's nice having a two-to-one model because I think it can take quite a long time for students to settle into a secure unit. So there's a lot to get used to with the keys and the doors and, you know, also just to take on board some of the service users' history, which can be quite disturbing. Yeah. Um, I would sort of advise them to read the current risks and then go and meet the person as opposed to diving into their HDR 20s or the, you know, the hardcore kind of risk assessments. And that usually works well. Mm. But I think having two of them is quite a good thing because they can kind of reflect their experiences on each other and, and debrief with each other. Yeah. Do you feel like they're able to support each other and stuff? It really feels like that. Yeah, definitely. Mm. I suppose, you know, you'd hope that the two would get on. I mean, they've, they have gone. <laughs> <Phew. You know. laughs> One funny thing, though, is that they were telling me that they barely met because, of course, they did like two weeks of their course. And then from then it was all on Zoom. Wow. Oh, OK. So they, they don't they know each other, but they only know each other from chatting online, really. Mm, I can't imagine training online. Yeah. I can't imagine it. Yeah. yeah so strange. At the moment. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so they're just coming to the end of their placement, but that's been a really good experience. Oh, that's oh, good. Lovely. What uni do you accept from? Um, it's all pretty much the UEA, okay. um, East Anglia, just because up in Norwich, you know, there aren't that many other courses close by. Mm-hmm. I also like it because I went there and they haven't really changed the paperwork. <laughs> yeah. So I, yeah, so I know this paperwork. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> A lot easier. Like, oh, I remember doing this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a nightmare learning someone else's paperwork. Yeah. <laughs> Currently trying to do it. Oh, yeah. Let's oh. <laughs> forget you didn't go to Brighton. I, don't I know, know, I didn't My go to Brighton. <laughs> and I cannot work out your paperwork. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on, Vicky. Is there anything oh, else fine. you sort of wanted to chat about or... Um, I do have something else, um, quite a short thing. Um, One thing that we really took on board and kind of tried to work with last year was about um, Black Lives Matter and anti-racism stuff. So really fascinating because we'd always had a lot of racial um, language used on the units, unfortunately, particularly when people are very unsettled. And um, unfortunately, you know, um, often bank staff or some of us substantive staff were getting quite a high frequency of, of... um uh racial insults let's say um when people were distressed um and so when we um went through that kind of um stage in a new cycle where you know black lives matter came about and and george floyd and um breonna taylor and all of that um a lot of the patients were asking questions about about racism and 
it was a really difficult one because we were kind of thinking, you know, how well placed are we to, to bring this up with people? And, you know, we need to do something about this, but we don't really know how. And we just decided we were just going to go for it. So we ran an anti-racism course in the recovery college. And you can imagine that that was quite um, an interesting thing to try and do um, in terms of making it accessible um, and in terms of knowing what to cover and how that was going to go. Um, it did go really well. I think one of the things that was really, really key was getting BAME staff to, um, you know, agree to be a part of it. And we couldn't obviously, um, you know, just put them in the group without discussing it with them. So we went out of our way to speak to everyone and, and see who wanted to come along to the group. And we had some very, very generous members of our staff who were willing to come along and even share some of their experiences of discrimination and microaggressions and some of the things that they'd faced on a day-to-day -day basis, which massively opened the eyes of some of our patients. Mm -hmm. um, we also went out of our way to make sure that people understood that it was a non-judgmental space. So they could say opinions that they they thought might not be right or they wanted to know more about and they could learn more about that. There was a really big debate about the N-word because a lot of them listen to rap. And so to them, it's very normalized. And they would say, you know, oh, that's all right. I can sing along to that in a song. And so it's kind of explaining that, you know, that can have a different connotation depending on who's saying it. And, you know, it might not be appropriate for them to be saying that on the ward. And in fact, you know, I would say it isn't ever appropriate, but, you know, we had that debate. Um, and also talking about things like immigration. So we had like a different topic each week. And the patients really took very well to it. And I think to me, it demonstrated to me that like you can tackle some of those really hard topics, even adapting it for LD. You know, there was a lot of value in doing that and not shying away from that just because it was quite a complex thing to set up. Mm, mm, absolutely. Yeah. It sounds like a really interesting group to have done and quite important. Definitely. Yeah, we're now getting quite a lot of other areas of the trust asking us if they can roll it out. So wow. um, Dan uh, Peacher, he's our adult education teacher. Um, he comes from the People Plus organisation. So he's working on on making that into a sort of role, a course that can be sort of rolled out by other units. Um, yeah, so yeah, we really enjoyed doing that piece of work. And, and the patients all sort of gave us really good feedback saying that it was quite a hard course to do, sort of hard in terms of the thinking that you had to do, but that they appreciated it. Oh, thank you, Vicky. It's been so interesting hearing about your service. You do, you've done so much. So much. <laughs> it's quite varied, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, definitely. We do have one question from the audience that we put out on Twitter. Um, so we've got a question from um, Mel Vale, who um, uh, is on committee with us. Mm -hmm. So her question is, how do you balance the need for structure for people with ASD who may be reluctant to engage whilst respecting their decisions? Yeah, that's a really good question. And it's actually one I've been thinking about quite a bit recently. Um, because I went to the sensory masterclass that the SI network ran. Um, it was Virginia Spellman talking about um, um, sort of like some of the um, development of sense of self. And um, one thing that I think very strongly is that if you're going against people's autonomy, that that's a bad thing. So if you're going into someone's ward and saying, you know, you need to come to this group, you really should come to this group. Have you thought about coming to this group? You know, knocking on their door. It's something that we traditionally would have done a lot of, 
Um, but if you if you if you've given it your best sales pitch and you've said to someone, you know, these are, these are the benefits you're going to get out of it. This is why it's worth doing. This is how I've made it accessible to you. Um, and they still don't want to do it, then I strongly think that you have to respect their autonomy in that. And, you know, the damage you can do by overriding that is quite significant because you're teaching someone that, you know, their views don't matter, that, you know, you're just going to do what you want anyway, that maybe the small choice might be the only thing they've got the choice over, that you're going to kind of like override that. Mm -hmm. So I strongly feel like you have to kind of... Um, if, if you've got activities and people aren't wanting to do them, then they're not the right activities and you haven't lined up the person and the task and the environment in the right way for that person mm -hmm. to, to feel like that's something they want to do. And you kind of need to go back to the drawing board and say, what is it this person wants to do? And also sort of respecting that non-compliance or non-concordance is a, is, a, is a statement that people might want to make. That might just be the way that they feel and the way that they're showing us that they're not happy with their situation. Um, so I think, I think sometimes you can, you can get that sort of urge like, oh goodness, we've got to get more people to the activities, um, you know, but it's not by any means necessary, you know, it's, it's not, it's not ethical to be, um, pushing people to that extent, um, especially, especially understanding that we have this power d d dynamic anyway. So I've got keys, I'm walking onto your ward, I'm a member of staff, I get to go home at night. You know, so I've already got all that power over someone. And the last thing that you should be doing is abusing that power against against people that don't want to do the activity. Um, so I, I do feel quite strongly about it, but it is something that you need to keep thinking about all of the time. I hope I'm partially answering the question. These are just my thoughts. That was brilliant, yeah. No, really good. Um, even though you'd love to have a full group, you know, what's the point of someone sitting there who didn't want to come in the first place, who's just sitting there thinking, I don't want to listen to what you're saying. Mm. you know fair. but Brilliant you might school. be able to find a different <laughs> thing there might be a different thing that they want to do and you just haven't you haven't discovered it yet yeah and all of their goals should be to do with what they want to do their motivations you know that can mean that you end up doing a lot of individual work if you do then you know so be it mm. Mm. it kind of control is so important isn't it yeah i think especially in the negative lives where a lot of stuff's been out of their control and probably the world's really frightening because it feels completely out of your control so yeah you're right yeah and you can also obviously go and look at you know have they got a depression or something that's affecting them because you want to obviously make sure that they're okay and and do what you can to help them to feel like they want to do things but yeah i do think i do think that like being able to refuse something is part of how you develop your autonomy um and you know if that's if that's the one choice they wanted to make is to not do that maybe they want to choose to do something else that would be great <laughs> but um it needs to be worked with rather than overridden thank you vicky that's been lovely like catching up with you and finding out about your role and everything you're doing <laughs> oh you guys great. are so nice to chat to i really enjoyed it <laughs> okay oh. <laughs> what we'll try and do is we um, try and link some of the things that um, we spoke about. I took some notes and things. And um, yeah, thank you guys for listening. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast, Vicky. Yeah, it's been lovely having Vicky on with us. Um, and next month we have um, an OT student actually coming on the podcast to chat with us called Amelia. 
and um, she'll be chatting to us about her placement with Bryony in um, the intensive support service and if anyone wants to uh, make contact with us you can in the usual way so we, you can contact us on Instagram at rcot underscore pld at Twitter at rcot underscore pld again and Facebook at rcot SSPLD and if you're a paid up member you can also um, make contact with us on the members page on Facebook so please do get back in contact and we look forward to speaking with you next episode bye guys bye thanks soon